All right, so I'm going to get back onto this history of philosopher series, but I wanted to take a pause here and give you the framework in some ways going forward. And the framework is this. So there are three major forms or branches of philosophy. The first, of course, is empiricism, which is the Aristotelian argument that there's a real world out there. We get accurate information about it through the senses, through that, through the consistency of behavior of matter and energy. We get logic and reason leads to truth about the world and it's all objectively verifiable, and that's the Aristotelian empiricism. Now, Platonic idealism is saying that there is a truth realm inaccessible to the senses directly and contradictory to the senses that creates that, that uh, contains a truth superior to anything we get in material reality. That's the Platonic idealism. Now, the third we're going to start exploring because it comes up as a response to the growing power of the scientific method. We talked about Francis Bacon and so on. So the growing power of the scientific method posed real challenges to theology, and one of the ways in which theology responded was, was, was with a sort of radical subjectivism, or at least I would call it radical subjectivism. And it's the argument that nothing exists unless it is observed. Nothing exists unless it is observed. That when you blink, the tree goes out of existence. When you turn around, things behind you go out of existence. Now, of course, this may seem nutty, and I understand that I think it's important not to just up and dismiss this kind of stuff, though I think we do actually want to understand where it's coming from and why. Because one of the things that's really true about studying any kind of philosophy is it's the what the hell stuff that goes on. Like, why would anyone believe this stuff? I've never gotten around to really deeply emotionally, I mean, I should write a character about this in a novel, but I've never really gotten around to, I've never been able to deeply fathom this kind of perspective. Uh, and uh, to some degree, it's based on uh, Descartes, the sort of uh, brain in a tank being manipulated by an evil demon stuff. And this sort of radical subjectivism, it's pretty wild. Now, of course, everybody has this thought, you know, when, when you're a kid, you know, does the light stay on when you close the fridge? And of course, I used to try and <laughs> close the fridge to see if the light went off in the same way that I used to turn the light on and close my eyes in, in my bedroom and see if I could see the room half in light and half in darkness. You know, just general experiments about these kinds of things that were fun, and I'm sure a lot of kids have, uh, have done that kind of stuff. So you want to know, is the fridge light off when the fridge door is closed? And, you know, you, you look, and just before it closes, often you'll see the light go out, and then you'll find the latch, you'll push the latch. You're able to reproduce it, and then you have the answer, and then you move on to, to other things. So there is, I mean, I've always been empirically minded. And I've had a great deal of difficulty understanding the idealist view, understanding the subjectivist view, that reality exists only when you observe it, which means, of course, that it's not reality. I mean, it's even less stable than a dream. In a dream, you look at something, 
and you look away, you look back, and it's there. The dream itself, of course, only exists in your mind. It exists as a powerful and often instructive hallucination. So even in dreams, which is obviously manufactured, there's a kind of constancy and consistency to what you experience, as of course there is in objective reality. Now, if you accept the idea that things don't exist when you don't look at them, and I can, I can understand in the, in the dream analogy or the dream version of things, really something doesn't exist when you're not looking at it because it's not even being projected on your sleeping mind as an illusion. But if you accept this, then the argument goes, well, how could there possibly be consistency in everything if it only exists when you look at it and it's, in a sense, a, a, a delusion? How can there be such consistency in the material world, right? Your bed spread is the same color. Uh, the coffee is in the same place. Uh, objects have the same properties. Uh, temperature, the temperature at which water boils remains the same and which water freezes. All throughout your life, how can there be such consistency? Now, of course, the answer is, well, things don't ex cease to exist when you're looking at them, but God looks at everything all the time, and that's why you get consistency. So it's a way of responding to the challenges of science, which, which was beginning to push back the explanation for material properties and actions, beginning to push God back from those things. And this really reached a culmination with Darwin in the 19th century, theory of evolution. It's a way of finding the need for God which is a way of saying, well, we have to be moral. And if you understand that for most of human history, God is a vehicle for delivering morality. And the absence of moral theories that could be established re rationally and empirically, the no ought from an is that came post-David Hume, finding a need for God, which I formally looked at as, you know, a need for a sky daddy and, and a community and so on. But it is a the desperate need for the delivery mechanism for morality. God is the ought in the is, right? In God, the ought and the is are the same. And when you get rid of God, then you end up still serving something, obviously, right? If you're not serving God and you're not serving abstract morality, what are you serving? Well, you're serving pleasure. You're serving greed, you're serving anger, you're serving consumption, you're serving sex, you're serving food, you're, you're just serving the body, right? You either serve God or you serve the body. And if you serve the body, then society collapses, right? If, if people simply serve their pleasures, their immediate physical pleasures, then society collapses because society is all of the standards that aren't base and instinctual. And that's what society is. That's how, I mean, there's a pride of lions, I mean, but they don't have a society because they don't have any abstract mechanism by which to push back against their base mammal desires. And by base, I don't mean bad or wrong. And of course, we have to embrace the animal side of us because it's really the seed of our intelligence and it's what our intelligence evolved out of. And so you can't contradict it fundamentally. So base just means bottom of the brain, reptile, you know, serotonin, endorphin pursuits and so on, right? the pleasures. And because we have abstractions, our pleasures can very easily become 
addictive because we can make those pleasures good and we can surround ourselves with a community that reinforces the, quote, virtues of those pleasures such as alcohol and uh, hypersexuality and, and marijuana use or other drug use, that it's cool, it's all natural. And so we can very easily form a community or a tribe that reinforces our pursuit of pleasure and this is really, I think, where the root of addiction comes from. I think the root of addiction is the justification for the addiction as a whole. And if you think it's <clears throat> kind of cool and neat and necessary when you start, and then you become addicted, then then you're in trouble, right? Because And also the addiction tends to be not just the justification, but the society that's necessary to reinforce that justification. So when we have a mechanism to deliver unto us a society, which is acting against base impulses, right? So the base impulse of man is to is hyper-procreation and physical aggression. And the base impulse of females is attention-seeking and manipulation. We have to have a society that... Well, we have to have a mechanism if we want a society, rather than just being a bunch of highly calculating and manipulative apes... If we want a society, we need a mechanism that gives us a reason to act against our base impulses. We have to have that mechanism. And we can see, as the fall of religion, we have the fall of that self-restraint, right? How do we restrain ourselves? Animals don't generally restrain themselves. Of course, right? I mean, the, the lion doesn't think of the feelings of the mother of the zebra fall, right? So I'm, I'm going to try and limit myself to one analogy. <laughs> I was about to say, you know, the alligator doesn't care about that. <laughs> but I think we all understand with one analogy, it's a smart audience, and you're well-schooled in these things by now. See, and also me telling you that I'm making it shorter doesn't make it shorter. But I think it will in the long run, at least that's the hope of the goal. So religion is the mechanism by which we restrain our animal impulses so that we can actually have a civilization. Because having moral disapproval is a way of punishing people for transgressing moral values that is not necessarily, can be, but not necessarily violent. If you are two men engaged in mortal combat, or any kind of combat really, I just think of boxing or duels or even fighting in a war, it's natural that the other person wants to uh, kill you, the other man wants to kill you, and you want to kill the other man. What's that quote from Patton from the movie? Uh, the entire point of war is not for you to die for your country, but to make the other son of a bitch die for his. And so the mutual greed for survival and conquest and domination and murder, I guess, killing in this case, nobody's really disapproving of it. I mean, it's just that's the nature of the beast, right? The lion understands that the zebra doesn't want to be killed. The zebra understands that the lion wants to eat um, the lion. I'm sorry, the lion wants to eat the zebra, right? That's, that's natural. That's, that's understood. That's central to the equation. So we need a mechanism of restraint. We need a mechanism of restraint. That tends to be religion. Now, we need a mechanism of restraint for those who are raised badly. The mechanism of restraint for those who are raised well is empathy. I don't have a desire to steal. I don't have a desire to assault. I don't have a desire to murder. 
And that's the result not of being raised well, but of pursuing philosophy and being in love and loved and all that kind of stuff and being a pretty pretty good person. So we need a mechanism of restraint for those who have the violent impulses. And that mechanism of restraint has to be where we punish social, economic, and reproductive success if you don't conform. And that means that everybody has to have a shared moral standard and that they are willing to ostracize those who break it. Right? I mentioned this before, but many years ago I was lining up to get tickets to a show and I thought it was in the lineup, but it turns out the lineup had formed behind me and this was just a path by which people could walk through the lobby. And I remember it was a British couple behind me when I sort of slid in with my date to get these tickets. And behind me he said, well, that's a bit much. Significant, strong disapproval. And so society needs a shared moral standard in order to threaten social, economic, and reproductive success to those who break the rules. You don't need to worry too much about people breaking the rules if they actually have empathy, unless their empathy has been really twisted and distorted through propaganda, but that's government schools and terrible media and a whole other series of things that solved in a free society as a whole. So God is the necessary mechanism for delivering the moral standards that allow people without empathy to restrain themselves, or in a sense, it's your best shot at having people without empathy restrain themselves. So the need for God that people have, again, in the absence of a widely accepted standard, i.e. UPB, the need that people have for God is the need for them to retain their civilization. Not just their culture and not just a cool place to go on Sundays and so on, but literally to retain their civilization. The restraint of the animal that is the essence of civilization, right? This is back to Freudian's book, uh, Freud's book, Civilization and Its Discontents, that we all have an animal nature and civilization thwarts it. And he, of course, as an atheist and a victim of severe childhood sexual abuse that was unprocessed as a whole, and a guy who pushed uh, cocaine upon friends and society, just a mess of a human being and so on, betrayed children fundamentally, thus leading to World War One in many ways. So... The idea that, well, we have this animal nature which is restrained and, and crushed by society is very sort of common. It comes to the hippie movement, you know, go back to the land, all natural, man, it's all natural, this fetish worship of nature characterized by the environmental movement. The environmental movement, of course, is a fetish of nature worship. It's a nature cult, which means that they wish to fall back to the level of the mere mammal, of the mere animal, and that all the restraints that can be imposed by conceptual abstract reason is anathema to them because it's the battle of the ape and the angel, right? the battle between the mammal and the abstract, between the body and the soul, so to speak. The mind-body dichotomy, right? That the Mind wants abstractions and virtues, and the body wants food and sex. And finding a balance, because you, you can't, I mean, you can if you want in the pure platonic form, say that the only virtues, the only good in life exists away from the body. You can try that, but that is to say that the body is evil, 
and only the soul or the abstract virtues are good. Uh, that's that's not good. I mean, that's not valid. That's not true. The soul is a beautiful thing that supports the life of the mind and really enables and makes possible the life of the mind. So to deny the body and its pleasures is uh, is wrong and not, not practical and not sustainable. And it abandons the taming of the body. It abandons that entire battlefield. And then you get all of the um, cultural representations that satisfying the body is the thing, right? I mean, this is an Andrew Tate thing, right? It's mating displays, wealth displays, domination, dominance, and all of that, right? So there was a desperate need to keep God, because to keep God in the absence of UPP is to keep civilization itself, to have a mechanism by which self-restraint can be enforced for those who lack self-restraint. Now, if we look at these three, and you could make the case, though I won't at the moment because the mechanisms are so different, you could make the case that Platonic idealism and radical subjectivism, which is that nothing exists unless you're looking at it, you could make the case that these are two sides of the same coin. Let's keep them separate for the moment. The question is, well, why would people believe these things? Why would people believe these things? Well, I'm going to put forward a conjecture, a hypothesis, and we can see how it plays out as we move forward in the series. And the conjecture goes something like this. All comes back to childhood, very early childhood experiences. And very early childhood experiences. So, let's say that your parents are present and they care for you. And they love you when you're a baby and toddler. And they're... Well, not perfect, there's no such thing, but they're really, they're good parents. They're good parents. They take pleasure in your company, they teach you things, they instruct you, they lead you to the world, right? When my daughter was a baby, she would always want to be held, but being held wasn't just staring into my eyes. She would want to be held, this is before she could even walk, she'd want to be held, and then she would reach for various things around the room, books, pictures, balls, cutlery, and so on. She would reach, and she would want to explore these things. So she would reach to be picked up, and then she would reach for things, and she would use me as a mechanism by which to explore the world. So I led her to the world. I was the portal through which she went through and was able to explore the world. She did that because she trusted me. She was secure in my arms. Uh, She knew that I wasn't going to lead her to anything dangerous and that I would share my knowledge with her. So it was a form of love and mutual happiness through the exploration of the world. And she's retained all of that empiricism, which is your parents are not there to just stare at you. Your parents are not just there to cuddle you, and those things are important and good. But your parents are there to lead you to the world, to have you validate and trust your senses so that you can act effectively in reality. So that's the birth of an empirical child. Now, I will at some point talk about how I came to empiricism in a more formal manner, in an instinctual manner than a more formal manner, but let's just focus on the general categories. So then we have the idealists. Now, of course, the Platonic idealists, they have that the abstractions are infinitely superior 
to the manifestations, that the categories are more important than the content, that there's a perfect table out there in the abstract universe that you inhabited before you were born, and you recognize individual tables based upon this abstract perfect table, and the truth is in the abstractions. The truth, the value, the reality is in the abstractions, not in the empirical manifestations. Well, how does that come about? Why, why would anyone believe that? It was always a fundamental question. Like, why do people believe crazy things? <laughs> why do people believe crazy things? Which they would never accept in any other context, right? If you order, like, you, let's say you pointed a picture of a salmon in a restaurant. I got pictures on the menu. They pointed a picture of a salmon, or just the word. Say, I'll take that, right? And then they, they bring you a picture of a salmon. You'd be like, no, 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 what do you... I don't want the representation. I want the thing itself. No, no, no. But the reputation is superior to the thing itself. It's like, I can't eat this. No, no, no. But the abstraction, the concept, right? They bring you the word salmon in big type, or they bring you a picture of a salmon, or they bring you the definition of a salmon. They say, no, 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 no. The concept is more important than the instance. This is the truth of salmonness. Well, if you cared more for categories, infinitely more for categories than instances, you would die. Because if you were thirsty, you would write the word water on a piece of paper and chew it and swallow it. Hopefully rice paper, right? And you would die within a couple of days if you cared for the abstractions more than the instances. So people only survive by working on instances, not abstractions. And the abstractions, of course, are wonderful and useful and powerful tools. But people survive on the instances, not the abstractions. So why on earth, why on earth would they say that the abstractions are more important than the instances when they're only alive because they process instances rather than abstractions? Things rather than definitions. Why would people believe these things which go so fundamentally at odds with everything that makes and keeps them alive? Well, I'll tell you why. Because they had bad parents who insisted on loyalty based not upon their empirical actions, but upon the category called parents. Boom. You feel that one shaking your spine, which should. If you ain't getting goosebumps, you need to listen to this again. Because if you have bad parents who demand obedience and loyalty based upon the category called parents, then they're saying that the greatest value, the highest value, the essential value is in the category, not the actions. The abstraction, the concept of parents is more important than the empirical behavior that they actually inflict. So your father beats you. Your mother screams at you. They neglect you. And you rebel. And you say, why? Why should I obey you? Because I'm your father. That's your mother. Don't talk to a mother that way. We are your parents. So you do what we say. right? So they're not making appeals to your reason. They're not making appeals to your empathy. They're not making appeals to your reciprocal affections. They are saying that you must obey a category called parents. You must sacrifice yourself for what? King Bob? No! No, not King Bob. Or not Bob a guy with a funny metal cap on. No, 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 no. You don't sacrifice yourself for Bob. You sacrifice yourself for your country. The abstraction, the concept, 
the concept is infinitely superior to the instance. The king, which is the concept, is infinitely superior to the bob. You don't obey the priest, you obey God. So all the social mechanisms of enforcement, primarily parents, right? your family is everything, you do everything for family. Well, you guys aren't treating me that well. No, 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 but family is everything. You must obey your parents. Honor their mother and their father. Not what they do, but the category, the concept, the abstraction. That's what you must obey. That's the most important thing. And, of course, being bullied by concepts, by abstractions, or respect being demanded by a concept rather than an individual who acts. A brother-in-law who cheats you out of $1,000. You must forgive him. He's family. The moral category, the direct action of theft and stealing. Well, that doesn't matter. What matters is the abstraction called the family. Now I get that abstraction covers genetic things, but that's why I said brother-in-law, right? Although if they have kids, they're part yours as well, of course. But when you are raised that the abstractions are infinitely more important than the instance you support your team. You support your team. Never understood that. Never understood that. But it's a fantasy that is required to make hundreds of billions of dollars move from one person, one group of people to another, much smaller group of people in the realm of sports. You support the team. Team is an abstraction. You support the team. And even though the team may look nothing like you, the team may have changed. There may be no, like when I was a kid, I, I mean, obviously there are no members of Crystal Palace still in the team Crystal Palace. There's no individual members. You're not supporting individuals. You're supporting an abstraction called the team. And even if they change everybody in the team, the team still matters. The concept still matters. The concept is what you have allegiance to, not the individual. Is it Queen without Freddie Mercury? Well, no. <laughs> no, it's not. Is it Queen without John Deacon? Even though he was only a bass player with mediocre guitar skills, he was still a great songwriter. So when you are raised with people demanding that you obey and respect and love the concepts, the abstractions, regardless of individual virtues, you must love your parents. Oh, are there any specific actions that they have to make in order to secure my love? No. Honor thy mother and thy father. Not their behaviors, not if they do X, Y, and Z, but just honor them as a category, as a concept. Serve your country. Oh, uh, is there anything that my country has to do to make my life better in order to secure my loyalty? No. You must just be born there, and then you must worship, like ducklings follow an orange balloon, you must worship this concept called the country. You must obey the country, the law. Oh, does the law have to be just, virtuous, justified, universal, moral? Not really. <laughs> I mean, obviously there has to be the illusion that it is, but you must obey all laws. The law. So if you're raised with people who love you, then you love them as you grow, right? You love them as you grow. 
I asked my daughter the other day, when does she think that parents can begin to love their children back for their morality, uh, their kindness, their empathy, or whatever? And she said, about, about two. I would go slightly younger, but yeah, uh, 18 months to two years. So if you are raised where you attach, you bond, not with instances, not with people, but with abstractions, class, parent, country, race, whatever, you know, it's where your loyalties are. Your loyalties are demanded to attach to concepts. Then by bonding with concepts, with ideas, a strange thing happens where they become your emotional reality more than the actions of any empirical people, actual people, actual people in your environment. Uh, right? You understand? People's bonding mechanisms have been transferred from people and individual actions to abstract concepts, which of course is camouflage for evildoers. Anybody who demands that you owe loyalty to a category they inhabit rather than their individual actions is robbing you blind in one form or another. Demanding that you be loyal to a concept and love a concept and thus them because they inhabit that concept. Honor thy mother and thy father. It's pretty wild, right? Now you could say honor all mothers and fathers, but mothers and fathers do different things and have contradictory ways of raising children. And therefore you can't all honor all mothers and fathers. And of course, each individual mother and father wants their child to honor them, not every parent in the known universe. This is honor thy mother and thy father. That is a bond to individuals, right? Thy mother and thy father, two people, right? That's a bond to individuals, a commandment to bond with honor and respect to individuals, but only as categories, mother and father. Those are universal categorizations of both parents. Honor thy mother and thy father. Honor these individuals because of an abstract definition that they and, of course, billions of other people around the world inhabit, but you can't love all those other billions of people in the world who inhabit this category, but only your specific instances. So you've got the instance, but you can't judge the instance to say, honor thy mother and thy father if they love you, if they're virtuous, if they are godly, if they treat you well. No. Honor the individuals in the category. The category is the essential thing. And of course that ties into the fact that we simply do have to bond with our parents, and if our parents say, well, you have to love me, I'm your father. Why, why should I obey you? I'm your father. Well, I'm your mother, so you have to do what I say. When you live under my roof, you do what I say, right? Which is how people end up conditioning themselves to loyalty to the country as a whole. You live in this land. So when you are told to obey an individual because of a category, you have no choice as a child. You have to bond with the category. You have to say, well, he is my father, and I will obey him, and then I will fight him and, right, in my teenage years because I'm ground down by this concept of father. Like why, let's say, boys, right? Why do boys fight their fathers so much? Or their mothers, or both. Oh, certainly single mothers if, uh, in particular. Why, why do they fight their parents so much? Because they've been ground down by this category that you have to obey your mother because she's your mother. You have to obey her. 
You have to obey your father because he's your father. All right? I can always hear my own dad coming out <laughs> when I do these things. So you have to obey your father because he's your father. Now, as a teenage, a teenager, you've been ground down by this. You've been subjugated. You've been enslaved to the concept. But you are going to very shortly, historically, inhabit that concept to become a father yourself. So you have to fight like hell to throw off those shackles so you can grab those shackles from your father and impose it on your own children. You have to go from slave to master, victim to victimizer, the recipient of unjust power to the inflictor of unjust power. So you have to fight like hell against your parents so that you can inhabit that category which oppressed you and now you use it to oppress others. You look at your own life, I guarantee you'll find this to be the case. Which is why you want to fight them, but not too hard. You fight too hard, then you become unjust yourself, and that's how the virus replicates. So when your parents lead you to reality, you become an empiricist. When your parents force, like whatever your parents demand you be loyal to as a kid, you will be loyal to, because that's your survival mechanism. When your parents force you to bond with concepts, then you become a Platonist, where concepts are where morality is, concepts are where the truth is, concepts are where things that matter are, because you have to bond with concepts in order to survive bad parenting. You have to bond with the concepts. You have to bond with the ideas. And thoughts, not things. Ideas, not people. Concepts, not actions. That's what you bond with. So, you know, when a theory comes along and says that the, the truth is not in reality, the truth and the virtue are in concepts and abstractions, you're like, yeah, that feels right, man, that totally feels right, because that's what I had to bond with. And if you could talk to a duckling who bonded with an orange balloon, and you could say to the duckling that parenthood is in orange balloons, they'd be like, yeah, that makes sense to me, that's what I bonded with. And empiricism is used by people who wish to overthrow the current morals of society, because you can't get an ought from an is. Empiricism is used, which is why so many atheists tend to be leftists, hard leftists or medium leftists. So athe- uh, empiricism is used as a mechanism to overthrow the morals of the current society, because empiricism is used to destroy God as a delivery mechanism for morality. So empiricism has its dangers, grave dangers. Now, what about the... So, we have good parenting, and we have abuse. When you abuse a child, you have to demand that child's loyalty. And when you demand that child's loyalty, you have to have a mechanism by which you can demand that loyalty, and that mechanism is this abstract concept called parents. Authority. Headmaster. So if your parents help you bond with reality, you become an empiricist. If your parents help you bond with, or demand that you bond with abstractions, categories, right? A friend of mine, single mother. Single mother took him to extended family. Extended family was actually pretty decent, according to his reports. I never met him, but extended family was pretty decent. And they were staying over at an aunt and uncle's place, his aunt and uncle's place. And down at breakfast, his uncle said, Hey, I noticed you left the uh, toothpaste cap off the tube, brother. Do you mind fixing it? Do you mind getting it? Kid ran upstairs and screwed on the tube, the, the, the top of the toothpaste tube, right? The cap. 
This enraged his mother for years. Because his mother would yell at him, scream at him, bully him, and would say, when, when Uncle so-and-so said that you had left the cap off the toothpaste tubes, you flew up the stairs to fix it. Why don't you listen to me? I'm family. Right, so the mom had the category adult family means gleeful, happy obedience. Right, I am an adult. I am family. You obeyed an adult who was family. Everyone should obey uh, family adults and happily too. Right, your uncle was an adult and a family member. You obeyed him happily. I am an adult and a family member. Therefore, you should obey me. Right, so she was demanding the same level of respect and obedience as if she was the uncle who didn't yell at him or screech at him or bully him. So she demanded that he obey a category that she inhabited, and she felt it monstrously unjust that he would not obey her in the way he obeyed his uncle. Happily, easily. Now, she didn't say, she didn't go to the uncle and say, well, how do you treat him that he listens to you? I should change my behavior to match the empirical actions that produce my son's conformity to you, to your request, your preferences. Right? No, 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 no. She took refuge in a category and demanded obedience based upon that category. Like in the West Wing, when Josiah Bartlett says, you respect the office, not the individual. You respect the category, not the person. You respect the, you respect the ideal, not the empirical actions. <sighs> All right, so let's get to the radical subjectivism. Everything might be unreal. You blink, things disappear. Everything is radically subjective. Could be a brain in a tank controlled by a demon. Where the hell does that come from? Well, that comes from... We've got good parenting, empiricism, abusive parenting, idealism, neglect. Neglect is what leads to solipsism, to narcissism. Neglect. So when you are neglected as a child, nobody leads you to reality. Nobody explains things to you. You have to raise yourself. You make up words. You make up fantasy stories. You make up ideas. You make up pictures. You do any number of things wherein your own mind becomes your primary reference. You can't go exploring reality as a little kid. It's dangerous out there. You can't just go and, hey, I'm just going to go and handle bugs in the backyard and I'm just going to go and stay out all day in the sun. I'm just going to pick up these little creepy crawlies and see what they are. I'm going to stick forks in holes in the walls and see what happens, right? I mean, the kids who had those impulses didn't live. They didn't last, right? They died. Or were crippled. Or were scarred and lost mating opportunities. So you can't go explore the world. You can't go explore the world if you're neglected. So what do you explore? Your imagination. Your own thoughts. Your own mind. That's what you explore. 
at least the world of forms, the platonic world of forms, the ideal world, is somewhere out there. It's not just in your own mind. Your own mind contains those forms, but they exist outside beyond empiricism, just as the virtues of your parents exist outside of the categories beyond the empiricism of their brutality. Ah, but if you're neglected, there really isn't any out there. There really isn't any out there. And that's a wild state of mind to be in. When you are neglected, you become the primary reference of your own empiricism. The empiricism that you inhabit is within your own mind. It's within your own mind. You explore your thoughts, you explore your imagination, you explore your dreams, you create imaginary worlds. And in the creation of those imaginary worlds, those imaginary worlds do not exist unless you are picturing them. And then they exist within your own mind. And then when you are distracted, they cease to exist. If you have an imaginary friend, that imaginary friend does not exist. But when you are talking and playing with that imaginary friend, that imaginary ex friend exists within your mind. And the reason you create an imaginary friend is because you lack connection in the real world. You lack interaction with others, so you make up interactions. Of course. Of course. All senses are heightened when one sense is destroyed. When connection is absent, imagination takes over and imaginary connections are made. I mean, one of the reasons that my daughter and I loved role-playing is because she was an only child, and I knew, of course, and very much enjoyed it as well, the uh, process of creating social relationships in her imagination. Now, of course, she did have friends and so on, but, you know, you need more than, um, you know, as an only child, you need much more interaction with your parents, and one of the ways we did it was through that. So, I'm a brain in a tank whose every stimuli is controlled by an external force, probably malevolent, well, that is children being forced into the dank movie theater of their own imaginations by a lack of outside stimuli. You follow? Of course you do. Isolated, neglected children. Neglect is one of the worst forms of abuse. There's a demon somewhere out there beyond my stimuli that is provoking all of this all of these hallucinations within me well that's a neglectful parent the parent who's depressed the parent who's absent the parent who's lazy the parent who won't interact well and of course now uh, kids go online they video games and, and other things right all of that occurs And so the creativity that comes from a lack of external stimuli, and we know this from isolation tanks uh, and so on, and people get very vivid hallucinations if deprived from external stimuli too much. And the brain steps in to provide stimuli, but external stimuli is absent. And so the idea that you are your own universe, that everything is an illusion inflicted upon you by an external absent malevolent force, well, that's a neglectful parent or parents, a neglectful society, a neglectful environment that forces you to substitute 
imagination for interaction. Forces you to substitute imagination for interaction. It's a perfect mirror, you understand. Things don't exist when I don't look at them. This comes from a childhood that's abominably neglected. Where, as you get older, of course, you realize that you had an imaginary friend. That imaginary friend did not exist when you weren't thinking of that imaginary friend. Now, it did exist within your own mind while you were imagining that friend. Just as dreams do exist within our own mind, but not in reality. So the idea that things don't exist when you're not looking at them. Well, the child, in a sense, doesn't exist when the parent doesn't interact with the child. Children learn through interaction. And in the world, of course, you need a balance between internal stimuli and external stimuli. If you focus solely on external stimuli as best you can, you empty out inside. If you focus solely on internal stimuli, you can't relate to other people. That's the spectrum thing, right? A little bit, I imagine. So your parents are the demons that are forcing you or creating within you this inner fantasy world. That, that, or this, everything that's within you is the result of manipulation by an external force. That external force, of course, is your parent. And your parent is a kind of demon for abandoning you to your own stimuli. Now, we do have a lot of people who are radical subjectivists, and that's because they are... Uh, you're either Your external stimuli is absent, in which case your imagination tends to go pretty florid, or your external stimuli is just too much. Right? External stimuli is just, just a too muchness to it. And then you retreat within your own mind, but that's more... That's not you reaching out to recreate stimuli that's absent. That's you retreating from excessive stimuli that's around. So if we look at these three philosophical perspectives, empiricism, idealism, subjectivism, all goes back to the parenting. Now, of course, we can't resurrect these philosophers and say, hey, how was your childhood, and test this theory. We can, of course, talk about it honestly in our own lives and ask people around us and so on. But yeah, you ask a subjectivist, what was your parent like? What was your childhood like? What was your, how were you parented? It's going to be neglect. Or, you know, the overstimulation of really early daycare and so on. And you ask the idealist, what was your parenting like? Well, I love my parents. Why? Well, they're my parents. And you have this, and this really, this challenge, right? So when I said, lo, these many, many years ago, that it might be wise to evaluate your parents as individual actors rather than within the category, parents, that one of the reasons I got such intense blowback was because I was challenging people's addiction to abstractions, to the category. Well, my mother has value because she's my mother. She's in the category called mother, therefore she has value. Wow. So I was saying to them that what you think of as a bond is actually the scar tissue of trauma. And of course, I wasn't aware of all of this at the time, but... You know, looking back, it all sort of makes sense, right? You have an addiction to the categorization as the result of um, abuse, most likely. And when you challenge people's subjectivism, their relativism, then you're saying, you live in a universe of you, 
because the universe of others was absent. You were neglected as a child. <sighs> you know, that's, uh, it's, it's one thing when people come to their own realizations. It's quite another when the Band-Aid gets ripped off by a stranger and the Band-Aid is their skin, <laughs> so to speak. So I kind of get that now. But that's the lens that I want to look at going forward. And, of course, I'd love to get your thoughts about this, and I'll post this on various platforms, 3domain.locals.com being the primary one. I'd love to get your thoughts on this. And tell me about your thoughts, your experience. I went through all three. I went through empiricism, connection. I went through abuse. I went through neglect. And as a result, I'm quite rational. I work well with concepts and analogies. I'm very creative because... The rationality comes from the healthy empiricism that came from my early caregiver when my mother was in hospital for depression for many, many months. And my facility with concepts comes from oh, going to boarding school and being demanded to be loyal to institutions, right? You've all heard that. And when, I, when I used to say, people would say, oh, tell me a bit about your mother and meet people or whatever, or where do you come from? Or, you, you know, uh, how, are you in touch with your mother? Or not, are you in touch with your mother? But they would say, you know, how are things with your mother? Or what's your mother like? I'd say, oh, I haven't seen her in many years. Oh, why? Oh, she was just uh, really mean and destructive. But she's your mother. Ooh, <laughs> emphasis, mother. She's your mother. The power. You've got to bond with the mother, not with the individual. It's like, well, no, but... But she is an individual who acted upon me, and if something's in the wrong category, you don't put it there, right? You don't put a lizard in the category of aeronautical equipment or a lamp in the capacity of uh, uh, HVAC, right? I like to categorize things correctly. Yes, she is my mother. But there's no moral content to the category of mother. Categories are not actors. Categories cannot be good or evil, which is a free speech thing too, right? Words cannot be good or evil. They're simply markers. They, they don't act. They hate speech. Well, speech can't hate. Individuals can hate. You can judge them for that. But you can judge actions, really. Actions are where morality lies, not in concepts. But when people bond with concepts, it's very easy to anthropomorphize concepts and to come up with crazy things like hate speech. So, yeah, I'm, I'm curious what you think about these things and what your experience is. And if you could hit me with your collective wisdom, I would always hugely appreciate it. And looks like we're back, baby. The series will continue relatively soon. Freedomain.com slash donate to help out the show. Really would appreciate it. Come on, you know you can't get this stuff anywhere else and never will be able to because after me has the example of us. Thanks, everyone. Take care.